Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people interested in positively applying behavioral science to their work and life. With this episode, we begin a series of podcasts featuring researchers from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, all from the Social and Decision Sciences Department in the Dietrich College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We are excited to launch this series with a discussion we recorded on a chilly but sunny morning in Porter Hall with professor, author, researcher, and department chair, Dr. Linda Babcock. Linda is the James M. Walton Professor of Economics at CMU and is a member of the Russell Sage Foundation's Behavioral Economics Roundtable. Linda has served on the Economic Review Panel for the National Science Foundation and is the founder and faculty director of the nonprofit program for research and outreach on gender equity in society. They even created a Girl Scout badge. In her spare time, she's been a visiting professor at the University of Chicago, the Harvard Business School, and the California Institute of Technology, and we don't know how she finds time for it, but she likes to dance and to go sailing. Yeah, I don't know. Linda's research stands at the intersection of economics and psychology, where she focuses on negotiations and dispute resolution. Her work has appeared in the most prestigious economics, industrial relations, psychology, and law journals around the world. In one of her books with Sarah Lashiver, Women Don't Ask, Negotiation and the Gender Divide, she describes the importance of women initiating negotiations, and she explores the societal factors that hold women back from asking for what they want. And what they deserve. Uh, True. Her work has been covered by hundreds of newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and abroad, and she has appeared on numerous television and radio programs discussing her work. In our conversation with Linda, we talked about how working women face more than just a glass ceiling. They face something that resembles a labyrinth. We covered the importance of negotiations and how women need to pay attention to the non-promotable tasks they get pulled into at work. Linda also brought up the importance of interdisciplinary work and the tremendous benefits generated by a department like SDS. She shared how great it is that economists, psychologists, and astrophysicists sit side by side to solve problems in the same department. In our grooving session, we covered all of this and doubled down on Linda's directive for men to stop asking women to do the non-promotable stuff. Stop! So we encourage you to enjoy our first episode of the Carnegie Mellon series with department chair, Professor Linda Babcock. Uh, well, Linda Babcock, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. I'm really excited to be here. We are so excited to have you, and we want to start with a speed round. So, up the mountain or down the mountain? Down. Coffee or tea? Tea. Monet or Michelangelo? Oh, hmm, Monet. Travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Wow. Okay. Well, can we just you, spend just a minute on that? Wait, but you said that you you think in the you know fast or slow, and you said you only think slow. I always think that was pretty quick. That is not. Uh, you didn't have to think too much outside of I, I the Michelangelo did. Monet one. There was every trip we take, we take off on our sailboat. Okay. And we just figure out where the wind's going to take us. We got no itinerary. It's the best thing ever just to disconnect. <sighs> from a very scheduled existence. 
Wow. I this see it's already fascinating for me. Okay, well let's um, let's uh, let's get to why we're we're here and that's to talk about your research. Tell us about some of the findings that you're working on right now. Some of the stuff that you're working on now that you're just finding like wow, this is really cool stuff that needs to be added to the vernacular of our world. Yeah, so I'm a behavioral economist and my work really focuses on trying to understand what the barriers are to women's advancement in the workplace. You know, it's a common understanding that women don't advance as quickly. You know, sometimes it's called the glass ceiling. Uh, there tends to be a barrier for, for women. Um, I actually think it is more like a labyrinth. And this is Linda Carley and Alice Egley's work. Uh, they call it through the labyrinth. And how I think of it is that women are in this labyrinth and there are these hedges in their way. And my research studies the hedges. What are the hedges that are keeping them from getting to where they want to get? And how can we cut those hedges down? So what can organizations do to remove that labyrinth for women? I love wow. that. I love that. Uh, that That's a great metaphor. It's a great image, right, to, to be cutting down the hedges. So what do you think are the, what are the big things that you're discovering are effective ways of cutting down the hedges? Well, it depends what barrier you're, you're talking about. So some of my most recent work is on how people spend their time at work. And what's I think really interesting about this is that men and women spend their time at work very differently. So let me just give you a personal example. So I sit across the hall from George Lowenstein, who is a very famous behavioral economist. And many years ago, I had this observation about the different ways that I am at work versus he's at work. Okay. And what am I doing at work? I am going to meetings. I am, um, you know, meeting with various groups of administrators. I'm on all these departmental and university-wide committees and task forces. You're also the head of the department. Well, actually, this is an observation I had when I was just a regular faculty member. Okay. So this, certainly now as department head, I do much more of that. But this was just, we had the same job. We were both full professors. And I spent a huge majority of my time going to meetings and doing the business of the university. And George, you know, I've sat across the hall from him for many years, so I know what he does. He sits in his office all day and he's hunkered down doing his research. There are students coming in. He's talking to collaborators on the phone about research. He's, he's on his computer doing research. And it just got me really interested about why George and I, who have the same job, we get rewarded the same way, but we spend our time differently. And you've collaborated on, on projects And we together. have collaborated. And, and, and so I started doing research on this. And what I find, um, and others have found this as well, is that women spend more time doing work that benefits the organization, but they aren't perfect they aren't personally rewarded for. So if I think about my job as a as an academic in a research university, 99% of my performance evaluation is about the research that I do. Mm -hmm. It's not about how I've been spending my time though. I'm doing a lot of things that are good for the university. And George is spending more of his time doing those things that are gonna get him to the next level. I mean, of course, he's been very successful at that, so he should keep doing that. But it just struck me as so interesting. So my research is about trying to figure out why this happens. And so you're finding that that is uh, across the board, it's not just a university setting. This is work in general that women tend to do the more generalized um, work where men can to focus in on this project is my project and I'm gonna focus in on that 
organization be damned. Exactly. It's not It's not really about academia. Um, I work for numerous companies, um, many professional services types firms, and we've collected a lot of data in these companies and about the hours and what people are working on each hour of the day. And women spend hundreds more hours per year doing what we call non-promotable work. Are there environmental and contextual aspects of our of the world that we live in that are fostering this absolutely this has not created something by the are the individual women themselves it's not just dna no no it's about the organizations coming to women to do these kinds of things because maybe they seem like more feminine tasks it's kind of congruent with being a, a woman or i think she's going to say yes and the guy is going to say no to doing a task like this and so these these kind of double barriers women are asked more and they say yes more just lead to women doing more of this work that ultimately is going to jeopardize their careers. So so you talked earlier about cutting down those hedges. So what are some of the things that you're finding that either women can do or organizations can do to help in making sure that that doesn't happen and that it is a more equitable component? Yeah, it's a great question because it's really not about what women can do Okay. because there's some very interesting research that shows that when women... Um, say no to doing these things, they actually get penalized. So we can't tell women that So they it's a should. double whammy. Exactly. Oh, so wow. so women shouldn't be in the business of trying to fix this themselves. Their organizations should fix it. And it's not rocket science. It's super easy. Stop asking women. <laughs> it's really... Can, can you say that one more yes, time? Yes, <laughs> stop asking women yeah. that men can do these tasks. We should ask them to do these tasks. If they say no, we should really insist. That is, organizations should figure out a way to distribute these tasks more equitably. Otherwise, they're always going to have a problem that women's performance is going to lag behind men. And it's not because they're not as good. It's because the organization is forcing them to spend their time in a different way. But this has been historically the way, and, and people are probably not even aware that this is happening. So what are the interventions that you could do with an organization to say, all right, yes, it's as simple as you know, let's start asking men more and, and asking women less, but to actually change their behavior, which is what behavioral economists are all about, how do you get them to do this? Well, That's you can... The- create norms, like everyone should do 100 hours of this non-promotable work a year. Um, If a woman is doing a certain task this year, next year it goes to the the man in the same position. Um, That there are ways to keep track of this. You know, the Kennedy School at at Harvard is now doing a point system, and you have to have a certain number of points that is service on different types of committees and activities. Everybody has to do 10 points, and if you don't do your 10 points, you have to teach more. So now all of a sudden wants to do these service things. (laughs) um, I'm working with another company that's a consulting firm, and what they've done is they've changed their performance evaluation. They're saying, hey, these things are actually really super important for our institution, and we're going to keep track of them, and we're going to reward people for doing them. And wow, all of a sudden, men are wanting to do these tasks more. So there are easy things that you can do that is cutting down these hedges. Setting up that the process around how people are rewarded, how they're evaluated, all of those different components. Exactly. Great. Yeah. And that really levels the playing field. Yeah. Wow. So what, um, I, I guess I, I just want to just keep hearing you talk about research opportunities because this is so cool. So uh, tell us uh, something else that you're working on now that 
that you're really liking? Because I know that that's not the only project. I know that you're not an only project kind of person. Well, I tend to be very thematic. So my work is mostly focuses, focuses on barriers to women's advancement. So right. I told you about the work I'm doing um, spending their time at work, but I also continue to do this work on negotiation. Yeah, negotiations has been a big deal. We've actually talked to some people who were interviewed by you and had this uh, self-consciousness because they read your book and felt like they should be negotiating with you or, oh, wait a minute, if I do, am I going to be, you know, how am I going to be seen or if I don't and, you know, all this kind of uh, stuff. So. Yeah, I, I negotiate a lot as a part of my job now as, as department chair, but people negotiate all the time in various aspects of their lives. We negotiate with our partners partners, with our mother-in-laws, we <laughs> negotiate with our contractors, our children, uh, you know, the people that we wow. work with all the time. Yeah. So it's a hugely important topic. Uh, so it's something I continue just to be completely fascinated by. So, but and, in the working world, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and you've, you've tended to focus a, a lot on women negotiation. And again, differences in traditional ways that women have negotiated versus men and, and it really helping in in changing that dynamic. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, my work on negotiation is not so much about how men and women negotiate because when they negotiate, they don't really negotiate very differently. Okay. <clears throat> it's more about who negotiates and just finding that men are just more likely to spontaneously initiate a negotiation when they want something about their world to be changed. And women are just more likely to accept the status quo as it is, even if they're not happy about it, or perhaps wait for someone to offer them what it is that they want. And it just comes down to how we've been socialized as, as women and as, as girls still today that leads to these differences in who negotiates. Well, I found one of the fascinating things in, in this is that you had done some work, or I'm not sure if it was you specifically, but with the Girl Scouts in creating a Girl Scout badge on negotiation, again, to maybe for you know to to stem that earlier in in girls lives and really get them to thinking about when and how so. yeah that that's absolutely right now that is um, my, my work that led to the girl scout badge awesome. called win win how to get what you want <laughs> and i guess there are two reasons for really pursuing that activity with the Girl Scout, with that partnership, which is just wonderful. One is, of course, to teach girls to negotiate because yeah. this is something that if it's ingrained earlier as kids, they will continue as a skill throughout their adult lives. So that's certainly one thing we wanted to do. But having the Girl Scouts endorse it is like the good housekeeping seal of approval. You know, it's like really? girls should be negotiating. It's a statement. And what that statement does is it changes the norms around what girls ought to be doing because it's saying, yes, we endorse us girls, you ought to be negotiating. And we think what that does is help our society be more accepting of girls and women who negotiate because now it's, it's the thing that they ought to be doing. It's the thing that everybody should be doing when they're looking out for the component. And I loved, again, um, listening to you and talking about the difference that $4,000 at the beginning of your career makes over the long term and the difference that that can be is significant. And just the fact that, hey, if you're, you're going to be looking out for your long-term interest, male, female, doesn't matter you need to be thinking about these things and not just going, oh, this is it's just $4,000 now. Well, in the long run, that's what, over 600 
thousand dollars if you just took simple math and yeah. compounded that. It, right? it just adds up over time. You know, negotiating early on means your salary is always higher, which means your raises are bigger, which means your retirement savings is is larger. Also, it just can add up to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your career. Yeah. And when you stop and think about that, it's a, a pretty weighty decision, a pretty important one. Yeah, and, I, and again, I think the one of the components is that we don't necessarily extrapolate that all the way out. And so what we tend to do is go, ah, oh, yeah, it's that I'm okay with that, 40,000 versus 44,000. Yeah. That's okay. I can I can survive really well on forty thousand, and I'll I'll ask for that raise next year or when somebody asks me, and then that doesn't translate into those long term gains. So, and and this goes all the way back to the very first job that someone has out of college, right? This is this is at the very beginning, the very very first. So it's not just any any job. It's it no, really- that's right. Obviously, the gains are, are more the earlier you start. But you know, I often get older women coming to me and saying, "Oh, is it too late for me?" And it's actually never too late to start negotiating and just to incorporate that as a daily skill that you have in your life. That's cool. Uh, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You started your work as a labor economist, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, but you you work. You know, your colleagues are psychologists, and you have a whole bunch of it's it it's as a group. It's very interdisciplinary, right? Yes. So, yep. can you talk a little bit about the interdisciplinary nature of the department and maybe some of the work that you've done where you've you said no, I I don't want to work with another economist. I I, I want to work with a psychologist. Yeah, so I think it's 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 part of what Carnegie Mellon does to a person is that it makes them a little broader. Um, you know, I came to Carnegie Mellon as a labor economist. I was really interested in conflict, and the way economists study conflict is with game theory. So that's what I initially started doing, and then learned about how psychologists see conflict, how they see why conflict occurs, and I thought it was an important. Um, aspect to add to our understanding of, of, of why we have impasses in negotiations, why we have war, why we have so much disagreement in our society. And so I started really incorporating this interdisciplinary perspective into my work. And I would say that that tends to be a bit of a journey that many people have in my department. Coming to a place like Carnegie Mellon with some interdisciplinary training, but really then flourishing in this environment where people are so driven by solving the world's problems. And of course, the world's problems don't come in a discipline, but they come in understanding kind of the interface between disciplines and and multiple disciplines. And so that's the that's a piece that I find so exciting about being here, especially at SDS, is this, however we need to, to do to figure out a problem, we'll apply those tools from whatever perspective, whether it's machine learning or... Yeah, it's not a psychology problem. It's not an economic economics problem. It is a problem, and let's put whatever lens is necessary in order to solve that problem. Yeah, exactly. So it makes it a very exciting place to be. We've talked to other people who have worked at other universities who don't have that, right? And that's been a a big issue is they're saying, look, you know, we need to look at this from a, a, a broad, I would love to have a university that doesn't have departments, we have problems, and this is a problem. Now, whoever is going to solve this problem and has some insight, let's all work on this together. Yeah, and I think really you need a mixture of both. You need 
people pushing the pure science and disciplinary perspectives forward. And then you need people like we have here who are exploring the interface between those. And in combination, that just leads to a better understanding of our world. Can you give us an example of, of something that you've worked on that, um, that you felt like the interdisciplinary perspective really enhanced the work that you were doing? Uh, well, definitely. You know, my work early on with, uh, with George Lonstein on the causes of impasses in negotiations really we imported ideas from cognitive psychology about the way people process information in a biased way and how that led to uh, a difference in perspective than how economists understood impasses and really kind of brought that that lens to economics um, so I think it really enriched the dialogue in economics about why there's there's conflict and and that maybe two people with identical information could actually have different beliefs. That's kind of a revolutionary idea, not to a psychologist, <laughs> but to an economist. And, and then economists took that and started building formal models about how that might happen and then pushing that science forward. So I think that's been pretty exciting to kind of see the transformation by bringing in a few really fundamental ideas from psychology into economics and then having economists run with their modeling toolkit to push it further. Well, this is at a time also when the field of behavioral economics is really just in its most nascent self, right? I mean, you're just just in the creation of let's let's do something to bring these together, right? What, what, what was that like? Can you reflect on, on, on some of the, those early ex exchanges? Well, I guess it's a lot easier to work in this space now than it used to be. Um, you know, 30 years ago when I started working in this space, people still thought of you as a bit of a outsider, not an outsider, a, a kind of throwing stones at the profession. So here are all the ways that people uh, make mistakes. Here are all the, you know, what Thaler calls anomalies. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first stage. And I think economics to some, some extent was very protective of, the, of its science. And so kind of put up barriers to people like like myself and others who were who were trying to say, hey, maybe we should look at things a different way. I think now behavioral economists are more integrated into the mainstream and are really taking the perspective of let's try to push the science of economics forward by using a behavioral approach. And, and so that's been an, also a really interesting transformation of um, what behavioral economists are doing. Was there much was there as much pushback within the uh, psychological uh, academic world as there was within the economic um, side of the, of, the, of the coin? Well, I would say that it has been a bit of a more of a one-way street in that psychology has really come into economics and enhanced economic ways of thinking. But economics has not really come into psychology as much. Um, so, why do you think that is? Well, it, I, I've thought about this a lot actually because I've 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 wondered this quite a lot. Why there aren't more psychologists who are interested in economic models, um, and some obviously are, but I, I think that psychologists fundamentally have a different motivation. Psychologists are really, it's a descriptive science. They're trying to understand what people are doing and why. And economists are really trying to understand things like if we change the minimum wage, what happens to employment? And so we're trying to apply 
apply, you know, trying to, to find applications for policy. So I think it's just a fundamental difference in what they're trying to do um, that leads to this this difference. Yeah, is that a, is it a wave that you think is going to to move forward, or is it so fundamentally in the in their view viewpoints from that that yeah, it'll be a small part, but it's never going to really have you know roots and take take hold within the psychology world. I, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Um, I I do so. We just for example, when you go to a psychology conference, mostly psychologists, but there are a fair number of economists that are there to learn about psychology. You never have. A, psychologists coming to economics conferences. Oh, really? Never. <laughs> and I, I think they would find it a very alienating experience. <laughs> Maybe that's why they don't. But just the degree of formal, formalization and, and math that's involved in the apparatus of economics, it, it takes many years of study to kind of penetrate the apparatus that economists use and the way that, that economists think. So perhaps that's a barrier for psychologists wanting to learn more about e economics is that, that that barrier is too high. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that could be very, you know, my background is in IO psychology and I can tell you um, I have an undergraduate in economics, but it's not anywhere near what you w would go through. And the, the math part is it's scary. I mean, I try in, in to sit, economics. It, even in reading, I was reading some of George's papers and just, and he does a fantastic job of translating, you know, hard mathematical concepts into what are, I would consider pretty layman's terms, at least to the degree that you can. Yeah. And I'm still sitting there having to read over and over and over. And that's not, um, I think, Again, psychologists, uh, from that perspective, we're look. You know, I, I think that could be a barrier. It could be one of those hedges for us. Yeah, that, you know, to, I, I think I think perhaps that's right. But it, it is interesting, and it's something that I thought about more about why economists have really not had an influence on psychology, whereas the opposite has been true. And I think there could be value, right? I mean, there could definitely be some strong value of of taking a different worldview and applying some of the insights that, you know, economics has into how you study, you know, what, how people, I mean, it goes back to decision making, right? Mm -hmm. and, and why people are making the decisions that they're making. And not saying that it's an economic result, but it's the process that economics go through in thinking through that into that so yeah your work is plenty in the public eye uh, we, you, know, you you get scrutinized by a whole variety of uh, from a whole variety of different perspectives but but looking back into into the catalog of your work is there anything that you feel like boy this was really good work and it's just undervalued uh, in in the you know by the the consuming audiences well I would say that, you know, you are right. My work has been a lot in the public eye. I make a lot of efforts to talk to reporters and to to get my word out there. Um, I think what I would say in answer to that question is sometimes my work has been misunderstood. Oh. And and so that's, that's quite unfortunate. Um, for, yeah. for example, I know that Rush Limbaugh was talking about my work one time on his show and was basically saying that 
my work was saying women are responsible for the gender wage gap. That is, it's their fault that they're paid less, and that's because they're not negotiating. Is that some kind of a misunderstanding? Well, I mean, <laughs> in a way, but I'm really careful in all of the work to talk about why it is that women are holding back. And the why is truthfully that women often get a very poor reception when they do negotiate. So when they negotiate, many times people think that they are too aggressive and that there can be extreme backlash against a woman who chooses to negotiate. And so it's that barrier that a woman is facing and then deciding perhaps that she shouldn't negotiate. And so kind of to blame women for that problem seems ill-advised, but and so I, I would say it's my interpretation. And, and, and so, you know, I think I, I have to be careful when I'm talking about these issues to really make it clear that this is a problem that society has created for women. It's not women's responsibility to solve them. It's really all of our responsibility. Well, I want to just expand on that component of misunderstanding or misattributing um, research. And, and I see that happening quite often across the board with research where reporters, they're looking for that easy headline that yeah. comes out. Or, or clickbait. And, or yeah. clickbait, yeah. and they take it. And and what do you think, what can researchers do? I mean, is there is there anything that they can do in order to kind of take that and, and really say, wait, no, you're saying this, but really my research was saying this much broader component. Yeah, and you know, most reporters that I've interact, interacted with are, are really terrific. They yeah. really take the time to, to get the message, and then they write a story, and then they, they, they let you read it before it goes out to make sure they've really got your message right. And so I think most reporters are really doing a good, good job of that. Yeah, I didn't but, mean to paint the bad. No, yeah, no, yeah, but. no, but it's obviously my job as an academic to ensure that that broader messages is understood and, and heard. And um, and so that's just a, that's a difficulty because people do want this this quick headline. And in truth, it's a lot, the problem is a lot more nuanced yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and requires some deeper thought and understanding. Yeah. Um, we'd like to talk a little bit about music. We? I would like to talk a little <laughs> bit more about music, Linda. <laughs> Um, if if that's okay, um, sure. This sure. Is, this is where we get to address your your twelve year old self. Yeah, I'm just going to warn you because really, my husband he calls my musical taste that of a twelve year old girl. So so it's yeah. So you're asking, but I'm just warning you. Well, I, this it, it it doesn't matter. It's your musical taste. I mean, as far as we're we're not interviewing your husband right now. No, we're, that's true. That's true. We get to talk to you about your musical taste. Imagine you get some big award, and you're going to have your theme music played as you walk across the stage. You get to choose your theme music. What is that? What is that going to be like? It's probably something by Bruno Mars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Kanye or you know, run DMC or, um, so I guess to really explain my musical taste, I have to reveal something about myself, which is that I used to be a dancer. And m many people that I, that really love music, really love the message that music creates and what a music, music is trying to say. I like music if it makes me want to dance. And that can be classical music, so I'm happy with with Mozart. That makes me want to dance, or Bruno Mars. <laughs> 
Um, okay. And as long so, as it's got a good groove. As huh? long as it has a groove, that that's what I that's what I I listen to. So wow. it's an interesting playlist. So uh, we've talked to Bob Cialdini about priming, and we're just wondering: Are there? Do you use music to prime you in any way? Do you use a particular beat or a particular vibe in advance of some experience to get in a mood or set? Well, the certainly, tone? I do like to listen to music to put me in a good mood. Um, at home, I always have to listen to it with headphones on because my husband and I would be fighting over what, what's, what's being played. Because okay. he actually has the worst taste of music um, from my perspective. Which we won't even have we to won't, go into. We won't talk about it. Because no, no, um, it's just terrible. It is. So I, I do like to listen to music, but I mostly listen to it when I'm by myself. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more about, do you have, uh, do you, do you orchestrate these playlists very carefully, or is it more like sailing, where you um, you get a, you just say, "Here's the genre, here's what I'm looking for," and just serve up whatever you want? Uh, no, I have my different playlists. I have like old funk versus my workout music, um, dance yeah. music. Just I have different playlists for different moods, but they're all kind of funky. Well, you mentioned uh, Run DMC. Do you go back to like Parliament? Uh, oh, you, absolutely! Yeah. I got Parliament on my on my playlist right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Young MC, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm yeah. a big fan of George Clinton. Okay. So, um, actually, yeah, have some fun stories about George. But uh, okay, so uh, if it's got the right groove, you're you're willing to say okay. You said Mozart. What it, it, what kind of classical music gets you? feeling like you want to dance well, well mostly like waltzes uh, mostly it's piano music because uh, i i grew up as a ballet dancer oh. and so it's just really relaxing at me to go through the exercises at the bar not the bar where you drink but the, the bar where you are yes exactly and to go through the sequence of plies entendus degage you know just to have that it just puts me in a really relaxing place Oh, is there any, one of the things that we, we, we try to give is our listeners say, what is, what is one or two things based on your long research that you would say, this will help you in life or work? What are some, what, you know, if there's one or two tips that you could convey quickly, you know, it's almost that speed round of tips. What would that, what would they be? Which is really easy to sum up 20 years of research in exactly. two, two short phrases. No, it, it's actually pretty easy. I think there's two big categories. The first is about negotiation and just to really recognize how important it is. And for women in particular, it's important about how they negotiate so that they don't inc incur this backlash as being perceived as too aggressive. So take a good negotiation class where you learn a cooperative win-win problem-solving approach to negotiation. I guess the second would be to pay attention to how you spend your time at work. Mm. How, how are you rewarded at work? How is your work asking you to spend your time and work with your organization to find a way so that the, the, this, what I call non-promotable work that's important to the organization is just distributed equitably so that it's not harming any particular set of people um, in their careers. That's terrific. Linda, thank you. We have had, this was a blast and really insightful. So thank you very much. Well, great. Well, thanks thank for having me. Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our interdisciplinary negotiated out brains. That's a lot to pack into a brain. 
negotiated out and interdisciplinary? Well, it's kind of what we do all the time. We're, we're interdisciplinary <laughs> and we're negotiating. So I didn't think that we negotiate. I thought that you just say, this is what I want. And then I say, okay. And is it, that's not a negotiation. <laughs> I thought that's how negotiations work. That's how they work for me. <laughs> I just do that to make you feel that way. Actually, that only works with you. Anybody else, they out negotiate me every time. <laughs> So. Okay, so what what struck you most in well, the, our discussion with Linda? I, there there were lots of things that were so fascinating. A yeah. um, agreed. You know, her work is just groundbreaking and really cool, and I just admire that whole component. But I think there was a lot uh, that the whole topic when she started talking about how men ask women to do these things in their <laughs> oh, jobs yeah. that are not promotable, right? That we. Yeah are often that women, it may not even be men, it just is that women are asked to do more of these common good types of elements. Plan the the company picnic, you know, attend these meetings, various different aspects. Right. And we just have to, we just have to stop that. It, it just is, you know. Men need to stop that. Men need to stop Very that. Much right? so. Very there, much there, so. There, there, there are not... Planning the company picnic is not a woman's, you know, job. No. It is. It is not. It is. It is just a person's job, and it shouldn't just automatically fall to the woman. Yeah, we can do better. We need to do better. Yeah. That is just a statement of fact. So, men, all of our men listeners, when you are in a situation next time and you're asking people to do things, just take a moment to consider: Are you doing this because you think? that that is a more traditional woman's role versus not, which lends itself into then this next conversation. Yeah. Are there typical female jobs versus typical male jobs? Well, we certainly have those preconceived notions, but that doesn't mean that they're they're right because it's clear that women and men can do virtually any job. So it's, you know, that we think, at least in the U.S., we have this historical story around uh, nurses, you know, being women uh, and let's say uh, firefighters being men. Well, guess what? There are female firefighters and they do just great. Uh, and there are male nurses and they do just great. They've been doing that for 50 years. Or more, right? Yeah. And, and you look at that, but there are traditional types of roles and and jobs that are that that tend to break down on various different you know gender roles right yeah engineers highly highly male type com- component right hr highly highly female right but it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be no. and that that i think is really the the point that we need to get across here well and a big imbalance for me is that uh, in in looking at some of the the data here that only 24 of the fortune 500 ceos are women and that's actually down from last year and that it's like man that is so deeply underrepresentative of the talent that is available um and I think I think Linda said it's not just a glass ceiling; it's like a labyrinth, you know. <laughs> and, and I think that that's like wow that that just kind of that typifies it. That that says a lot. It's not just a little bump that you just can't get above. It's that you have to go through this maze, that, and that's crazy. Yeah, and and again, I think a lot of that falls down on a, a lot of our preconceived ideas, and we just have to stop. We just need to yeah. stop doing those idiotic things 
that are causing you know those discrepancies there 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 definitely should not there should be way more than yeah. 24 um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are female I've seen it with um, I've seen it with a, a woman that I know who works for a large company whose uh, manager is uh, a very senior leader in the organization who has asked her to do things that are non-promotable as Linda would say you know, and and he said, well, you know, uh, these guys, you know, uh, Joe and John, well, you know, they're really busy right now, and, and it looks like you've got some flexibility in your schedule. So why don't you take care of this? Oh man, and that's that's really just a cover story for, you know, you're female, and uh, and I'll, I'm willing to ask you to do this, and the male, the men, I won't ask them to do this. I don't have the guts to ask them. Uh, so I'm just going to go to the woman, you know, on my team to, to take care of this. And I think that that just sucks. So to our male listeners, just stop. Just stop asking females to do those things. Or at least that, you might ask them. They might be the most appropriate person. There may be a situation when, when, are, yeah. when, the, when that's the case. But don't just do it in system one thinking. Do it in system two thinking. <laughs> right. All right. En- engage your deliberateness in this. Yes. Okay. Take time, pause, think about it, yeah. then take an action. All okay. right. What else? Uh, I was super excited about the cross-disciplinary uh, element of the SDS uh, team. You know, that this department <laughs> is just so, I mean, we've got psychologists. Yep. Economist, yep, and astrophysics. Astrophysicist, I was going, oh my god, and a mathematician. I mean, yeah. it's like okay. mathematical and astrophysicist, and then uh, you know, I mean, and the research spans from everything. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> it tremendous. just amazing. But to sit in the same room and bring this diversity into the room enhances problem solving. You know, all we, we we talked about this a lot, right? We've talked a lot about Project Aristotle and the work that Google did on team building and the development of teams and diversity is such an important thing. It's important in a university setting as well. Well, it takes me back to a conversation. I don't know if we actually recorded this with with uh, James Heyman, very first podcast interview we did, right? Yeah. And one of the things that he talked about was that universities are so often siloed. It is, the, here's the psychology department, here's the <laughs> right. economics department, here's the business school, right? And and there's, you do not cross those lines, right. or it's very difficult to. And, and I'm laughing now because it seems, what, psychology applies to everything. Exactly. Business can be, you know, you, you, you take these these implications from all of these and apply them. But what what he was talking about is it should be a product problem, and then you just bring all the people who have a, have a kind of interest in that problem together to solve that problem. Right. And that's what I think Linda has been able to do and that that the this group at Carnegie Mellon is actually accomplishing. They are bringing yeah. in viewpoints that are wide and varied and have differing perspectives that enhance how we approach and look at a topic and bring in some different viewpoints. So it's not just an economic component of this is how we solve this issue. No. Hey, there's some psychology, there's some other higher maths, there's this element of sociology. All of these factors that come into play and give a much more holistic viewpoint and it just seems like a fun place to work. I was actually on the phone this morning with a British colleague, a guy who lives in London, and was telling him about what you and I were up to today. And 
he, it just blew his mind when I talked about the interdisciplinary element of the SDS department. It just doesn't. It, it's just so uncommon and so cool. Yeah, you know that 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 was so so interesting about. It. Okay, so uh, so what else, Kerr? What uh, what else struck you? Well, so I think a, a tip for our listeners, and if you didn't get this already, we're gonna hammer this into your head because you know what, Linda does all this research on negotiating, right? Yeah, and. If you don't negotiate on a lot, I mean, we're negotiating in our lives all of the time, but we often don't negotiate in those very important times, right? The first time you get a job and a job offer comes, various different pieces, and you're an idiot if you don't, all right? And I'm just making that statement out you're, there. You're being pretty bold about that. Well, that's the deal, though. But, I mean, you, you, you take the, the component and, uh, you know, Forty-four thousand dollar, you know, starting job versus a forty thousand dollar starting job, and if that's in your early twenties, and you extrapolate that out over the course of of a of a work life, and you sit there and you just do just basic, you know, two or three percent compounding annually, that's over six hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of dough. Are you gonna just yeah. throw? I mean, hey, if 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 somebody said you got a you know, better than 50% chance at a lottery ticket of uh, getting 600 some thousand dollars. And all you have to do is go into this job, you know. And ask for it. And ask for it. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of our discussion with Sarab. Uh, you know, maybe if we gave them a $10 Amazon gift card, they'd be willing to do the negotiation. Maybe Sarab and Linda should do some cross-pollination on an experiment there. No, but I think that that is a really um, interesting thing. And I love the work that uh, Linda's doing with women specifically around negotiation because yeah, they, again, historically have not done as much negotiation. And the fact that there is now a Girl Scout badge oh, for negotiating. Snap. Yes, the win-win badge. Oh my gosh. Isn't that awesome? I <laughs> want to become a Girl Scout so I can get a win-win badge and then get some cookies. You're going to have to make a plea <laughs> on that one. I'll, I'll try to negotiate. <laughs> You'll negotiate your way in. There you go. Uh, I want to make sure that we mention the importance of her second tip. Linda was talking about how important it is to learn how to spend your time at work and that you really need to be thinking about the things that you do as being, this is promotable, this is going to actually contribute to my career, this is good visibility, or this is just crap work. Again, know? going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the session. Making copies, uh, planning the meeting, growing out and grabbing lunch, those are non-promotable things. And they, it may feel good because my boss recognizes me for it, but it has nothing to do with my career. Yeah, And, and men or women, especially women, uh, need to avoid that and be more thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, is there anything else? No, I think uh, I'm ex super excited for all of these, uh, this series, right? We had such insightful commentary and interviews with all of the Carnegie Mellon professors. And I'm just super excited to see they get these all out. It's going to uh, be great. Agreed. And a special uh, note of gratitude to Linda for uh, really helping us organize all this. Yes. Thank you, Linda. So with that, keep on grooving. Keep on grooving.